You're listening to Deus et Machina, a podcast that brings people together for short conversations about religion and technology. Our first season has to do with artificial intelligence. I am your host, Matthew Vaughn. My co-host for each episode will be Norm Jackness, a professor of technology management at Columbia University. In this episode, the first of a two-part series on medical ethics, Norm and I are joined by David Hoffman, a professor of bioethics at Columbia University and an attorney specializing in healthcare law. These two episodes are all about some of the ways that AI has impacted healthcare, something that religious communities have traditionally taken very seriously. This first episode has to do with the ability of machines to think in ways that perhaps supersede human wisdom. David, could you spend just a few minutes talking to us about a few of the ways that healthcare has changed a little bit as a result of artificial intelligence? We'll start with healthcare and then go to ethics a little bit more as we go. Sure. I would say we are at the cusp of a dramatic change in the influence of artificial intelligence on the provision of healthcare. As we move from what I like to describe as decision support to decision substitution, and that is the notion that now we're using all kinds of artificial intelligence products, algorithms, pieces of hardware and software that enable, for example, telemedicine, all with a human mediating the impact of the artificial intelligence analysis with the actual impact on the patient. But what we know is coming, and frankly, would be hard to avoid given the pace at which AI is growing, is the time when an artificial intelligence system can make important clinical decisions faster and with greater certainty than a human could in the same time frame where time matters to the patient's outcome. And at that point, we will have to contemplate the ethical and frankly, the uh, theologic implications of surrendering responsibility for patient care to a machine. And so right now, you find most artificial intelligence in reading images and in conducting other kinds of diagnostic tests. So obviously, neuroimaging involves a lot of artificial intelligence where the image taken by an MRI, a CAT scan, a PET scan are read, as we used to say, analyzed by a computer using the computer's accumulated experience looking at other similar and not so similar images and coming up with what we can think of as a provisional diagnosis. We do the same thing, by the way, with the reading of cardiograms, which is the electronic monitoring of heart condition or heart function. And right now, the computer analysis of cardiograms represents most of the reads of cardiograms that are done but no action is taking upon that interpretation until some clinician takes in the analysis from 
the computer and decides whether it is consistent with lots of other information that we have about patients, including social, personal, and family history and pre-existing conditions, drug allergies, other sorts of contraindications for different kinds of interventions in the formation of a treatment plan. But that won't last for long because at some point it will be irresponsible to defer to human judgment when computer, when machine judgment is so much better and more consistent and more reliable. It's something we're seeing, for example, now in self-driving cars, right? So I drive a Tesla and it has an autopilot mode. It's not full self-driving, but it'll drive the car down the highway, maintain speed, maintain follow distance, and react to what's going on around the car to keep me safe. The reality is that though the autopilot functionality has its limitations and has its faults, and it has been responsible for some untoward events, the reality is that on a strictly analytic basis, it is so much more frequently right than it is wrong, and by an order of magnitude compared to a human being. So take that to a clinical environment. Years ago, I was involved in litigation on behalf of a clinician, a cardiothoracic surgeon, who was using a machine called a cell saver machine, a remarkable, really almost miraculous device that was developed in the early 90s. And it would, very simply, suction blood out of the operative site of an open heart procedure, run it through a centrifuge, and pump it right back into the patient. And the safety system for that was something called the limited volume of air failsafe. And that is a designed-in constraint that kept the amount of air in the circuit so low that when the blood was being pumped back into the patient, it couldn't generate enough pressure to overcome venous return pressure so that if there were, by some odd circumstance, air in the system, the air wouldn't get into the patient's body. And that was thought to be, quote-unquote, foolproof. And the product was advertised as being something that could be operated completely autonomously. Well, it turned out in the case of one particular unfortunate person who I'll refer to as Charlie, the system was used in a variety of configurations that the designer didn't anticipate. It was switched from auto to manual back to auto, such that a quantity of air got into the circuit that was, in fact, able to overcome venous return pressure. And the patient experienced what we call an air embolus, which is a fancy term for his heart got pumped full of air and he died. You can well imagine now in the 2020s, a computer program, an AI functionality that would actually be monitoring what was going into the patient, fluid or air, and in fact, monitoring the purity of the blood as it was pumped back into the patient. And it would make more sense to let the computer make that decision in real time than have a human try to make all of those judgments. But when you do that, you are then absolving the humans, as was the case with the representations of the self-saver back in the 90s, you're absolving the humans of responsibility, which begs the question, who then is responsible? 
And since we know it is the definition of artificial intelligence that it builds on its prior experiences, it's hard to even hold the programmer responsible because the machine as it functions in later iterations as it accumulates experience is different than the data set that was available when the machine first started working. So right off the bat, I think it's interesting listening to you talk about this. You've already broached issues of practicality, legality, autonomy, and culpability. I mean, there are so many things that you have teased out, any one of which could have some very real religious, I think, implications. I would like to let Norm react to a few of these things. But before I do that, I would ask if you could just maybe mention one or two other areas in which machines, machine learning, artificial intelligence are coming to the forefront of the conversation. You've mentioned right now scanning of images. Now you've just, in your example, talked to us a little bit about technologies that allow the monitoring of patients during an operation, et cetera. But you and I have spoken in other contexts as well. I know there are plenty of other ways that machines and machine learning are impacting health and healthcare. Would you mind just naming maybe one or two other examples before, again, I would love to hear, Norm, for you to react a little bit to some of the ways that David's describing the technologies that you tend to know quite a bit more about than I do. So anyway, David, could you speak briefly, though, to some more examples? Yeah. So the next one that comes to mind as having real practical implications in the near term are monitoring of patients' conditions at home, where we are relying upon this monitoring technology to integrate a variety of different data sources, basic vital signs, pulse, blood pressure, respiratory rate, oxygen saturation, but then other more subtle indicators such as pain, anxiety, elevated blood glucose, and to take all of those data streams and turn them into a diagnosis and a prognosis. That is, is it still safe for this patient to be left comfortable in their home environment? Or is this a patient who needs to be immediately transported to a hospital because they need urgent intervention? Then we think about the urgent intervention. And this is where, of course, it really gets interesting. We have now the most rudimentary cardiac pacemakers and a similar but very much more substantially impactful device, a defibrillator, an automatic implanted defibrillator. Right now, those devices are more or less from a state-of-the-art perspective Dumb devices. They have very simple inputs. They react to simple diagnostic findings and will either deliver a small jolt of electricity in the form of a pacemaking signal or a larger jolt of electricity in the case of a cardiac defibrillator to restore a healthy cardiac rhythm. What we know we are moving toward is devices that monitor all of those inputs and make a much more sophisticated decision before you get to the point where either your heart pacing is off or you develop a fatal arrhythmia or potentially fatal arrhythmia that needs defibrillation, needs cardioconversion. And then you can just think about what can come next because we know that lots and lots of people, and in fact, you see this on television commercials, which I do find slightly distressing, 
people who have two implanted devices, one is measuring blood glucose and the other is administering insulin in response to the glucose level. Well, that's great. But right now there is a human who is able to monitor when the insulin pump is introducing insulin and arguably can turn it off at the moment insulin is being administered if, for example, the patient has an adverse reaction, insulin shock, diabetic coma. We can well imagine the time when the insulin pump isn't administering a what's called a bolus, a single dose of insulin in response to some finding by the glucometer, the meter that measures blood sugar, but is rather continually monitoring your metabolic action and administering microdoses intermittently or continuously such that you keep the person from even getting to the point where they were having a blood sugar condition that required a bolus, a, a more significant dose of insulin all at once. And then that's without even considering a device that has the capability of countering a reaction to the insulin by administering glucose. So all of these things are possible. And when we get to that point in a non-hospital setting, there won't be anyone capable of monitoring all of those micro decisions that are made such that the person can intercede if the machine comes up with a decision that someone thinks is not the right decision. Begging, of course, the question, what is a right decision? So, okay. Well, let me, uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to, actually, I'm going to stop there. Norm has had his pin in the air a couple of times and I want to give him a second, but I've got a couple of questions to take us to the next step whenever Norm, you've finished. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I've got a bunch of things. Uh, thank you very much. I have, uh, let's deal with the implications first. I'm just curious, David, to get your reaction to a book that came out just a couple of years ago by Dr. Eric Topol called Deep Medicine. And his proposition is actually in the subtitle of the book. It's how AI can make healthcare human again. And his argument is by doing all the things you're talking about, the doctor now can spend a lot more time as one human being to another in that patient-doctor relationship. Are you actually seeing that? <laughs> Is that actually, and is this something that physicians actually are encouraged by? I don't know of anyone who has actually measured the impact on the qualitative element of a clinician-patient relationship because clinicians don't have to spend so much time doing the technical work. Anecdotally, it ought to be the case, and I have seen it the case in some situations when a surgery is planned out for a surgeon using an artificial intelligence program so that every technical aspect that might have otherwise involved a complicated explanation of how a surgeon decides how tight should the sutures be, how much blood should be administered, all of the sort of mechanical variables that go into surgery, when all of that has been standardized because we have massive data sets and we can apply those data sets to each patient's individual physiologic condition, yeah, that leaves more time for the clinician to talk to the patient about what are 
the long-term benefits and burdens of having this procedure? And is this something that is right for you at this moment? But I don't know that's been measured. All right. Interesting. So then I'm going to go to some of the more concerning issues that come up, and actually not just in healthcare, but in general. One is the trade-off between accuracy of predictions and understandability. A lot of the what's called deep learning are are models that are probably more a lot more accurate than other algorithms around. Usually they are. If you're trying to use deep learning to identify pictures of cats versus dogs, you really you just want to know what's cat, what's a dog. You don't care. If you're using it to diagnose whether or not a particular set of pixels on an X-ray is a sign of cancer or not, how much is the fact that these predictions are black boxes? affecting the acceptance of this and the ethical considerations of the use of AI in in healthcare diagnosis. Well, and this is, in fact, the point I was making a moment ago is that they're not black boxes because at the moment, from a clinical perspective, albeit not from a technical perspective, there is the mediation of that algorithm's conclusions by a human being. That's the definition of clinical decision and support as opposed to decision substitution. And in that respect, there is still a person who is held legally and morally responsible for the accuracy of the information, both the technical accuracy and the relevance of the data, not just this shows that you have a particular arrhythmia, but that arrhythmia can produce negative effects, justifying the risk of applying an electric shock to your heart. And then to follow up on Matt's question from earlier, the next brave new world is applying those same kinds of AI algorithms, not to cardiac function, but to cerebral function. And using a variety of things that are analogous to an automatic implanted defibrillator to mediate the brain. And there's all sorts of ideas about the ability to image and objectively diagnose mental illness, which is a very fraught exercise because it requires someone or something to come up with a normative definition of mental illness, a task which I would suggest is impossible. All right. Yeah. I mean, I guess I was getting to the point of moving from having AI as a second advisor to the physician as to where you were saying where that this, that advice is actually substituting for the, for the physician's decision. Then the more complicated thing, and hopefully I won't bore the, the audience with this, but one of the things that people forget with AI is that all of its predictions are really just probabilities. We tend to convert those probabilities into decisions one way or another, but ultimately the probabilities, and they can be wrong in two ways. So there, we've heard a lot of this with COVID, false positives and false negatives. And again, if, if you're Amazon, you don't really care about false negatives as long as you're making money. If you're diagnosing cancer, say breast cancer, you care about false negatives. You don't want to send the woman away saying, oh, you're, you're okay. And then six months later, she's got an advanced case of breast cancer. For that matter, you also didn't want to tell her that, that she's got breast cancer, so that's a false positive, and you do a surgery that's unnecessary and can be traumatic. So the question, I mean, the question is, to what extent is there sensitivity on the part of physicians 
in understanding these kinds of ways of looking at the results of AI? And ethically, how do they balance these things? So this is the crux of the dilemma. And in ethics, we define a dilemma as a conflict between two or more ethical principles. And here we have the classic conflict between patient autonomy, that is the ability of the patient to make decisions about their care, including what someone might consider to be a bad decision, autonomy on the one side, on the other side, beneficence, the obligation of clinicians to do what's right for the patient, whether the patient realizes it or not. And that is as old as Hippocrates and probably older. It becomes a more interesting question in an AI context, specifically because we're not measuring the algorithm's ability to get it right against a standard of perfection, right? Descartes said he could prove the existence of God because he could imagine a perfect being and not be that being. And here we can only measure the effectiveness of any sort of an algorithm-driven medical device against the equivalent performance of a human being under the same sort of controlled laboratory conditions. And to your point earlier, Norm, we're not really talking about a situation where a computer is getting it right or getting it wrong in an absolute sense. We're looking at how an AI system can make an effective judgment about the impact on this particular patient of a particular treatment. That's exactly what clinicians are doing with their human brains today all the time. And what we know, and this was my analogy to the autopilot function in my car, we know computers do that much more consistently and reliably, but that doesn't change the fact that when the time comes that we have to let algorithms make judgments because the human can't keep up, and the timeliness of the judgment, for example, during a procedure or during some sort of a medical crisis, time matters a lot. Then we have to ask ourselves, what standard are we holding the AI system to? Is it a standard of perfection, of godlike insight, or is it a standard that is slightly higher than that of a human clinician? And that's a judgment we haven't figured out how to make yet in all of the different modalities of medical care. But I will tell you that when the day comes that somebody decides it would be irresponsible not to let the computer do it because the computer does it so much better and so much faster and so much more consistently, we will have to have some human-derived analytics data to back that up. So you made the black box comment earlier. Right now, in a decision support context, there is no black box because we can take the judgment that the algorithm made and compare it to a judgment on the same data, the same image, because the image is frozen in time, even if the patient's condition deteriorates or improves for that matter. But we can compare the computer's read of a static data set call it a CT, MRI, angiogram, and decide with some certainty the percentage of accuracy measured against what a human can do or what a set of humans can do with the same diagnostic data. Yeah. But it goes, beyond, 
Yeah, it, yeah. But it, it goes beyond that. And one of the things, the, the concerns about black box is the physician can explain why she or he has come to that conclusion. The causality, the black box doesn't do that. And to what extent does that factor into your assessment of the ethical considerations here? Right. So the question you're asking at base is, are we asking the, the algorithm to exhibit human-like capability right. or superhuman capability? Mm -hmm. And when we talk cool. about superhuman capability, we have to then ask super compared to what definition of human? <laughs> right, right. Just one, one other second. Because sure, sure, sure. I, I wanted to remind people why we started doing this these conversations. And David, I thought that it was interesting. You made a distinction between better than human and godlike. And the issue, part of that got us started with this, is some people have gone down that slippery slope and concluded that it's godlike <laughs> when it's just better. <laughs> and, 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 that's, and that has all kinds of other implications as well. Right. And whether people perceive the AI as being godlike, even when they're told it isn't, <laughs> which is a problem that we deal with in human subject medical research, something we call the therapeutic misconception, that's a real ethical dilemma of its own. Because when you tell a patient about the prognostic value and the prognostic certainty of an AI system, and they still think it's going to be absolutely perfect, whatever perfect is designed as, you have a real ethical dilemma of a different sort. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a product of the Mid-Atlantic and New England Maritimes regions of the American Academy of Religion. Matthew Vaughn is executive producer. Norm Jackness and Ronald Bernier are producers. All recording, editing, and post-production work was done by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. We would like to extend a special thank you to our guests for their time and their expertise. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the voices offering them and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of others affiliated with this podcast or the American Academy of Religion. If you would like to learn more about the American Academy of Religion, please visit aarweb.org.